Hi everyone, it's Sherry Walling. Thank you for joining me for the 30th episode of Parenting Reimagined. In the last 30 weeks, I've talked with 30 different parents. Many people have seen the value in this type of storytelling. We've had over 10,000 different downloads. So thank you to those of you who keep coming back. And a special thanks to those of you, to the 30 of you out there, who have been willing to be guests on the show. So for this week, for our 30th episode, I'm really excited to bring you an interview that I did with Dr. Alan Kasdan. Dr. Kasdan is a professor of psychology and child psychiatry at Yale University. He's a former president of the American Psychological Association. He has had an absolutely phenomenal career. 700 publications, 48 books... His two most recent books have been for the general population. It's Dr. Kasdan's attempt to take all of the great science that he's been working on throughout his career, translate it into a language that everyday parents can understand, and disseminate it broadly, widely, to anybody who can use it. His life's work has been devoted to helping kids, particularly kids who struggle with major behavioral issues or major psychiatric illnesses. And because of his interest in kids... By extension, he's become very interested in parenting. I'm grateful that Dr. Kasdan took the time to talk with me, and I hope that you find his interview to be helpful. If you're interested in learning more about his work, you can visit his website, alankasdan.com. There's a link to it on our blog. You can also visit the Yale Parenting Center website for more information about the services that he and his staff offer and for a link to his book, The Everyday Parenting Toolkit. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. So my name is Alan Kasdan. I'm a professor of psychology and child psychiatry at Yale University. And the work I do is to develop interventions for children with psychiatric disorders. And so we have a special clinic and center in which we see children and work with them and develop effective interventions. Much of my work is on parenting, and coincidentally, I am a parent, and I have think and act, because when one's working with disturbed children, that's one of the main goals. And as it turns out, one of the most effective ways to do that, based on research, is changing parent behavior in very concrete ways. So that led me to parenting. And once you begin on parenting, now you start studying negative influences in the home, parent stress, a little marital discord, child abuse, domestic violence. So once you go into the one area, you kind of now look at all the influences that might be on the parents and the child. And so that's pretty much how I've I've gotten into this. When you're focused on helping children be well, children behave well, children get along well in their world, once you start looking at the context, you pick up lots of pieces of parenting and environmental um, influence that are important in child behavior. Uh, absolutely. And as one example, we found that many of our mothers were very stressed. And so we could change the child easily. 
And that would really help reduce the mother's stress and the mother's depression. So we, that was interesting. But what if we added to our program what was known about punishment? And so of all things, I suppose that would be the one that had greatest influence on me. That's a big parenting decision. It's not such a big decision when you know some of the things like this. Even moderate corporal punishment can change the mental health and the physical health of the child long term. The stress of that can change the child's immune system and make them vulnerable to diseases when they're older. When I was, didn't, didn't know about this, it was easy. Yeah, do that. Yes, do that. And then now you learn of the consequences in great depth. And now you say that you, you kind of say, these are things that most parents would not do if they knew them. And there's nothing special about me. It's just that if you know the, the tremendous bond and tie and, and commitment one has to one's child, if you knew that feeding them a food would cause them a disease or increase the likelihood, you would never feed that to them. Well, it turns out just because of my profession, just because of my work, I learned the psychological food that could really harm them long term. And so it wasn't a big decision. It wasn't clever. It wasn't smart. It was just that, oh, my God, I have to be very careful here. That brings us to an, another point that I think is so difficult for parents, especially in our in our modern age, so to speak, in that there is so much overwhelming information about parenting, you know, blogs and books. And and I, don't, I guess I wonder if you have any advice for, for parents to, to help them discern what is valuable, scientific-based information versus, you know, just what is information that's out there. That's just a marvelous question. So very briefly, I before, doing a, before my, writing a book myself on this, I read the top five or six bestsellers. And I was appalled because they, they included, I thought it was going to be benign, cliche advice that really was pretty harmless, and it wasn't. Many of the books, the best-selling books, have advice in there on things that we know to be wrong. So, for example, some of the best-sellers will say, when your child's angry, sit down and talk to them. And once they know you understand them, they won't be angry anymore and they won't be aggressive. Well, what does the research show? It's always good to talk to your child. It helps them think. It helps them learn. It, has, it shows how you reason. It teaches vocabulary. However, as a behavior change technique, no, no, no. It's not an effective way to change behavior. How do we know that? From research. But parent know, parents know it too. Many parents will have said, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. We know that in psychology. It doesn't work. Talk to your child, yes. To change behavior, it's not an effective way. Another recommendation from a bestseller, use long timeouts, four hours, five hours if you need to. Well, what does the research show? No, a timeout of a minute or two is just as effective. Long timeouts are not good to do at all, and they're not more effective. And, and so it goes on with an endless list. So how can, one, one's, how can a parent tell? It's almost impossible from the web. Go to government websites. Their information is better, you know, CDC, NIH. Uh, go to American Psychological or American Pediatric Association. But the information that's out there, you know, you can change your child's behavior by diet. Rare. That's rare. You can do this and eat that. And, you know, so the bad information is out there in spades, and the good information isn't out there very far at all. So you found that going to the sites that maybe are connected to the government or to these larger psychological and psychiatric organizations tend to have maybe a little more accountability about their information and where it's coming from? That's right. That's right. Okay. And, and also the, the critical thing is that 
Um, in science, we don't draw, I don't draw on my experience to advise parents. My experience is only mine, and it's not very helpful. I draw, do we know anything from research to help you? And let's not wing it. This is your child, and it's way too important. Do we know anything that can help you? Not believe, do we know? And so that's why I write, I decided that what science could actually help parents? Let's put it out there. Just give them tools. That's important separation in science. What do we know? What do we believe? What do we have as experience? What do we have from our research? But in the world, it's all mixed up. So you don't know everything about parenting based on your experience oh, raising two daughters. I know just as much as another parent does. <laughs> but drawing from the, the broader scientific research, you have much, many more tools and ideas and, and information. I do. and we, We've now helped several thousand parents from very seriously disturbed teenagers and young children to parents now who come to us who want help with the normal challenges of everyday life. How do I get my teen to show some respect? How do I get my child toilet trained? How do I get my child to practice the tuba? We can do that pretty easily, but uh, we work with the full range, but based on, it's based on research findings and procedures that help parents, not in my experience. So based on all of this tremendous experience and your knowledge of the research literature, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see parents making? Well, I wouldn't see them as mistakes. I would see them as uh, ex unrealistic expectations. And so the first one of these would be moralizing with your child is going to have any impact. So when you start explaining the general principles or why you should be honest, and what if everybody were dishonest, all those things are good because whenever parents talk nicely to their child, it builds long-term relationships. So that's great. But the expectation is that once you moralize and everyone nods yes that they understand, that's going to change behavior. That's, that doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. And the issue is this. Talking and understanding do not have much role in changing actual behavior. And if you don't believe that, any person who has a partner or spouse and been married for more than a few years, the, that spouse and partner has heard a thousand times what you dislike. I wish you wouldn't do that to the toothpaste, and I wish you'd clean up after yourself, and I wish, and the person understands perfectly. And there's not a cigarette smoker on the planet who doesn't understand that this is really dangerous. And so understanding is not a, a very good way to change behavior. And so that expectation that it will is a really unfortunate expectation that most parents have. And the last one I would say is that punishment is going to teach the child what to do. And we know now that punishment is not a very effective way to teach the behavior you want. And it's not even a good way to teach the behavior you don't want. It doesn't get rid of it. It's just a temporary suppression. So parents do all these things, and the technical things for them in psychology is called normal, but they're also ineffective. These are the misexpectations. By talking, you're going to change. By understanding, you're going to change. And by me punishing, you're going to learn this lesson once and for all. It turns out not. What children learn from punishment? Children punish their peers the way they themselves were punished by their parents. So if you're a sarcastic parent, your child's really sarcastic with peers. If you hit your child, your child hits peers and gets into more trouble with physical force at school and so on. So if parents have a mismatch of expectations around talking, for example, sort of explaining things to kids, what do you recommend or what's the, what's the science base? Well, there's a lot. It would be nice if parents sat down at a table with themselves and said, what are the three or four things we want in our child? And just said things. It might be honesty. It might be altruism. It might be respect. It doesn't matter. Choose what you want. And now, um, be more strategic in the most powerful uh, tool the parent has, which is modeling. 
That is to say, show those behaviors whenever you can. And whenever you see them in the world, you're at a food court and you see, look at the way that child talked to his sister. Wasn't that so nice and so sweet? That was really great. And just leave it at that. No moralizing. So st- decide concretely what you want. And this would be character, uh, character traits probably. And then now try to s- identify them whenever they occur in your own behavior, in your home, and, and, uh, and focus on that. That will go very, very far uh, in developing what you want. And also, to uh, lower expectations for how much a child can do. One of the big problems of parenting is that once a child knows something and doesn't do it, now the parent thinks the child's being manipulative. And the psychology part of this, knowing has little relation to doing. So you know, you know how, to, how to do your homework, but you're not doing it. You're just either a brat, you're manipulative, or you're just a a disturbed child. No, you have to actually practice that and sit down and help your child for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you can easily get the hour you want without you being there. And so so there's some things that research shows about getting the behaviors you want a little differently from what we normally do. And so there, there are effective tools. And your recent book, The Everyday Parenting Toolkit, provides a lot of those strategies in a, in a very, it's actually a very readable and very simple way. So it seems like a great resource for, for folks who are listening to this podcast. I wonder if you have any particular wisdom to share for families who are right in the midst of returning back to school, changing the schedule. A lot of things are in flux in family life. Any sure. advice about how parents can do that well? Sure. There are a couple of things. First of all, Family life is really calmed, very calm. The disruptive behavior is less when there are more routines and rituals. And the routines and rituals can be just those are regular, regular activities. And the regular activities do not need to be special. It could be that every Saturday morning we go to the bakery. And we just we go to the car together in the bakery, or it could be we do parallel play Thursday afternoon after work, and these things should be just regular. And it could be you know it's not about quality time. We go on rides to the amusement parks. No, 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 no. It's the everyday. We have a certain dinner on a certain night of the week, and you help me set the table on that night, or whatever. And those things make family life much more calm and much better. So those are kind of uh, make the behavioral problems already go down a notch. So that's one thing. Another thing is to promote communication with your child. And this is so difficult to talk about because almost every parent says, my child could talk to me about anything. Turns out that's false. You think it is, but the child can't really approach you. And we know that from research. So the key there is to talk about your life with your child. Talk about your day. Talk about, you know, don't say, what happened in school today? Do you have any homework? How about your friends? Is so-and-so still bothering you? No verbal waterboarding or interrogation. Talk about yourself in your life. You know, when I was your age, you know, what, what happened to me, I had this, tro- this problem at school that just talk, just talk. And then you'll, you'll, you'll bring out more talking back to you. So communication could be improved among even families in really great family homes that everything's going well. It sounds like one of the keys to good communication is modeling, to have a, a parent who knows how to have a conversation and share openly and... Absolutely. Also, you know, we, we've learned from research that the teens and preteens want to talk about sex and drugs with their parents much more than their peers, but they don't because they feel they can't. And uh, so that's a case where, now, if we have time, a little story from my own situation was very interesting to me. My teen daughter came to me and said to me, could we just talk like friends rather than 
father and daughter? I said, well, I guess so, but I am your father. And she's, no, 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 just pretend you're not, just for a little while while I talk to you, while we talk. Could you just do that? Could you try that? I said, sure. And so we sat and she was talking about some school relationship issue, and it was nothing all that heavy, but she immobilized me in a wonderful way, so I didn't say, you know what you should do, and what about this? And I didn't give advice, I didn't give my opinion, I just sat and listened very nicely. She did her story, she got up and walked away, was very satisfied, and I had... Uh, for once, wonderful duct tape over my mouth, so to speak. And it, it was just great. And it was a great communication because I wasn't a parent to her then. I just sat and listened as a friend might. And mm -hmm. so what an instructive thing to, to learn that that fits in with research about try not to be judgmental, try to be flexible, try to be a listener, but also model just everyday talk and everyday kinds of activity. It's, it's neat that she figured out how to ask you to take off the mantle of authority and, and just be with her. Yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, the issue is sometimes, you know, there's a funny statement. What is talking is not a matter of, you know, listening is not a matter of really hearing the other person. It's waiting for your turn to speak. And that's a nice a analog for some, some interactions. And for a parent, you want to make sure that the first thing to do is to hear it all and don't get judgmental. And then, and now just, you know, you know, here's some things you might consider, you know, because well, here's what we know. When you change behavior, when you try to change behavior, by authority or by tone of voice or by phone pointing a finger, we know from research that you get resistance. And that is to say there'll be more oppositional behavior. If we tell a child to put on his coat because we're going out and we use a point of finger, the chances are stronger that the child's going to say no, fold her arms and say no. But if you say, would you please put on your coat or your green sweater, we're going out to the store. The please changes the tone of voice, the choice makes it so the child's more likely to engage in what you want. And so we know so much about how to deliver these statements that parents do every day that change people tremendously. Um, it's, it's much of things here are in the presentation. In a way, it sounds so simple, but, it's, you know, it, I, I'm also... It's so hard. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah, it's here's so why, hard. Here's, here, here's why it's why so is it hard. hard? It's so hard because of this. One of the reasons is the brain is hardwired to pick up negative things in the environment. And the usual interpretation of that is evolutionary. That is to say, you know, you're on the savanna, you're looking and see beautiful sunset. Should you be looking at the beautiful sunset or should you notice a little bit in the bushes there, there's some tiger staring at you? We survive better by noticing negative things. And what that means is that, so for example, if two children are watching TV and they get into an argument, a parent rushes in and says, why can't you two ever behave? You never get along. I'm going to turn off TV and neither of you will be able to go to college if you don't stop this right now. Now, but what we practice with parents, we train them to run in that room and say, look at you two, you're getting along so nicely, this is really great. In other words, we train parents to find the positive opposite. We can't get rid of what you don't want by punishing it, but we can get rid of it by praising in a very special way what you want the children to do. But it requires practice because our brains are focusing on the negative. You have all these wonderful things in your partner or spouse, but boy, that one thing just kind of grates on you a little bit. And again, that's called normal, but you have to practice one, one out of it a little bit. So this idea of the positive opposite is that even when your kids are in a tangle about a toy, rather than addressing the... The, you well, know, the right, things that they're not supposed to be doing. Well, right. Well, okay, in the middle of a crisis, there's not too much you can do. So we, the, the, we say it this way. When someone's drowning, that's not the time to teach them to swim. You have to just save the moment. 
So when they're tussling over a toy, make sure nobody gets hurt, separate them, bring calm. However, any other time that they are playing nicely, parallel play or together, now you have to sting that with a very special praise. Not your usual praise, a special praise. Why is it special? The research shows it has to be done in a special way. And once you do that, you'll increase their cooperative behavior tremendously and it'll decrease their fighting. And you only have to do this for a couple of weeks or so. This is not a lifelong thing. But the praise has to be very special and you have to get the behaviors you want. The key parenting moments become in the moments when everything's going well and on using right. this special That's praise right. and, and honoring right. that, noticing it. Okay, so, and here's, here's the myth. The myth is that this is a teachable moment. Not at all. That's ridiculous. There aren't these teachable moments. Teaching and learning requires repeated practice. And what this approach does, it gets the behavior to occur frequently, builds habits, change the brain, get it going, stop the program, and the behavior's locked in. And there's not a teachable moment. This, that's, I wish it were. You know, wait, you just saw a, a picture of Rachmaninoff in the encyclopedia. This is a teachable moment. Let's do a concerto. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. You just saw someone get hurt. And, and uh, this is a teachable moment about injuries. No, it's not. It's not. It's just the opposite. These are the unteachable moments. Mm. So I've observed and, and honestly had moments of this myself where rational, kind, thoughtful, relatively healthy adults kind of come unglued when it comes to their children. Their own emotional experience gets in the way of their ability to kind of rationally read the situation and, and make observations. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering why does this happen? And <laughs> sure, sure. Um, first of all, it's, this is one of those mis-expectations that we all have, but the research shows it's, it's a mis-expectation. Let me give you a couple of other examples, and then we'll come right back to the one you mentioned. There might be, let's just say hypothetically, there are famous politicians could be presidents, could be senators, doesn't matter. And these politicians engage in some emotional behavior. Could be something, who knows, drug or sexual related. Let's see, we're being hypothetical. I have no one in mind. I'm, <laughs> I'm a citizen. I'm the public. The public's reaction is normal and says, how could a person so smart do something so stupid? And the answer we know, but not in everyday life. And the answer that we know is that understanding and knowledge and brilliance is not connected to these other parts. And, and so, so you'll have someone saying, you know, I know I shouldn't be eating this dessert. And then they do a triple mud pie. That's called normal. And that's called normal because the shoulds in one's life do not control how one really acts much of the time. And so now, going back to your situation, so the parent comes totally unglued. It's a rational person, and they're just terrific, and they're the model. You know, they, mother, they make Mother Teresa look mean. They're so wonderful as a person. But when their child does something, now it goes straight to the emotional parts, and these aren't always suppressed by the rational parts. And we know how this comes on even developmentally in teenagers. So sometimes the rational part can overrule, but sometimes not. So, for example... You can tell yourself in the morning, I'm going to not walk by that bakery on the way to my office. The rational part helps control what will be something that you couldn't control later. However, on one day, there was a detour, and you walked in the, right by the bakery window, and you looked in there, and you said, you know, I'm just going to walk in. It wouldn't hurt to walk in. Now the cues are so strong for the appetitive parts of your brain that you say, I know I shouldn't, but I have three dozen of those and just two dozen of those and give me one to taste while I'm walking out of here. And, and so rational can control, but, but very often in Kent, and when the emotions are intense, 
that's the place where the rationality can't do a lot. You know, one of the things that we've talked a, a lot about in, in these conversations on this podcast is the parents' own well-being, sort of relational, emotional, spiritual well-being, shaping the way that they interact with their children. And I, I guess I wonder if you would maybe comment on that, or is that something that you have found to be important, or is it... Yes, yes. The, the, the research is clear on this in a few ways. One of them is, so if a parent is stressed... Uh, for one example, the stress at work, stress in something that happened, a fender bender, stress, and they come home, they might now, what we've learned is that the tone of their voice changes in subtle ways in their interaction with their child. And that tone of voice can increase oppositional behavior. And then the parent will say, you know, after the day I've had, this is the last thing I need now. Now you get changed in your pajamas and get to bed. And now there's a little fight and tension. Is it anyone's fault? Well, it is not about fault. It's about consequences of, of certain actions. So stress in the parent can change their interaction with the child, and that can increase uh, problems in the child behavior. And, and so what we'd like to do is, as much as possible is make sure there is downtime for everybody in the home. There's this, it's not a selfish generation. It's not a me generation. There's nothing like that. It has to do with, you know, the, their special responsibilities of being a parent are so heavy that make sure you're sane, make sure you're, you're as stressed and mellow free as, uh, stress-free and as mellow as you possibly can and do things to foster that. And, and so, uh, you know, you, you need a break. And it's not just for you. It makes you more healthy physically, but it also makes you a more effective parent. It seems like it's difficult for people to give themselves downtime. Any, any thoughts about how to do downtime well? So it's kind of like what makes you feel mellow, being on a beach, being in a library, um, being out on a date, being, and kind of find what is a little bit refurbishing. And, um, you know, there was a, a, a woman we worked with once who said that uh, she had no money, but she said just taking care of the children all night, every night was such a, a stressful burden, and her husband never helped. If she could go out one night with a friend, just window shopping at a mall, it would just be wonderful. So we, she asked her husband, we practiced that. He said, he was a typical guy, he shrugged his shoulders and said, sure, not thinking of how important this was. And he watched the children one night, she went out, and she just felt so rejuvenated, and she felt finally support from her husband. She, she, she imbued this with such other significance, and because it just kind of reduced a lot of stress for her. She never wanted to buy anything. She just wanted to go out with a friend and just to a mall. And so find out those one or two things and just make sure that, you know, they're in your routine. And, uh, and the child needs them, too. We're finding that now many children are programmed so heavily. Some are even up to six or seven days a week of some lesson. Um, everyone needs a little bit of downtime. Hmm. Your children are grown and, and out of your home, perhaps having their own children or, or thinking about that. And I guess I'm wondering what parenting legacy you hope you have passed on to them. Well, you know, uh, I guess I'm, I'm just no different from any parent on that. I would like to think that um, they found some source of flexibility and some and some positive things, but they're normal children. And so what they're going to see is they'll, they'll have a few things in which they say, boy, I don't want to be like that. And of course, they'll, they'll <laughs> and, and then, um, you know, and, and then uh, they'll, they'll have their own things for the new age. But I think the issue I would like to have fostered would be, you know, try to listen, try to be flexible and, um, but also have, have the rules and limits. That is to say, there are certain things that, that uh, are not really allowed and you're, and you're not 
quite ready uh, to do that. And uh, and so it, it's a tough, it's a difficult tension that there is in parenting. At the one hand, you want to indulge. At the one hand, you want to say yes. On the other hand, it's not helpful to them to have no limits and no rules. And bridging that is always difficult for a parent. And then enforcing, do you use authority and power? Do you ever grab your child? No, you don't grab your child. But the research shows if you grab your child, you'll be hit. And you're very likely to be hit. And if you're hit, you say, now it escalates. You never hit me. You never hit me. And now you slap your child. You throw them in timeout. So we know these predictable cycles. And the idea is to try to stay out of them. What my children will have learned from me, Lord knows. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, you're obviously very curious about the process and committed to, to understanding and learning and reading and being aware of the research. And Also, too, you know, if one looks at humans, but one looks at also non-humans, there's this really amazing, a little bit pre-programmed, very strong bond that we have with our children. And I often am fond of saying that we tolerate in our children things we would never do in another relationship. And sure. that's the strength of that bond, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. But uh, it also creates the intensity you just mentioned about losing it. Uh, you have this four-year-old child, and you're up there in age with all your reason and experience, and you're totally undone by this four-year-old. I think I read somewhere you've written something like 700 articles and 48 books, two of which are for a popular audience. And your most recent one is probably the most broad, if I, Everyday Parenting Toolkit. Right. And what, what, what mark are you hoping to leave on this field of parenting? Um, I so, so do not want to disappoint you. I really don't. But I don't, there's no mark I want to leave. We're helping mm-hmm. parents. And parents are gaining from it. Parents thank us. Uh, I'd like not to be identified with this at all. The issue is to get the word out and to help you know, parents make things a lot easier. We can make normal parenting, everyday life, much easier. We have done it with thousands of families for a few decades. And so my, I don't want a legacy. I want this to be out there. If everyone did this and had no idea who I was, I would be elated. So you actually just want to be helpful, huh? I'm, it's, I know it sounds really bad, and, uh, and it's a disappointment no. to your audience. It's just a disappointment to your audience, and, and I, I'll try to come up with something before the end of the call that's more dramatic. But I don't want to. I don't want a legacy. That's no good. What is that for? I mean, come on. No, but that's that's not an investment in anything helpful. So that's the end of the kind of the questions that I sought through to ask you. But but I wonder if there's anything else that that I should have asked you about, or or anything else that you you know would like to talk about or follow up on. Well, you know, I guess the real thing is that the the frustration that you've raised uh, that the the amount of misinformation that is there, and um, and and you know it, it's it's kind of like you you're reaching out to try to help parents who would like to help. And you can't quite touch their hand and get to them. And so, so for example, this book, with this toolkit book, most parents are doing fine and happy with what they're doing. And they, we call it a toolkit because of one thing. You go to a tool when you need it, and you don't use it every day. Just reach in the toolbox, and if you're having trouble getting your child to get rid of a tantrum, we can get rid of tantrums. We can do that pretty easily. It's not that hard. We've done it thousands of times. But, you, but you're, all your ways you're doing aren't going to work. Go into the toolbox. We can do that one to help you. And so the frustration is that there are so many problems that can't be solved right now, and there are so many problems that can be, but we can't get the word out. No pressure, but the entire future of our country depends on you. Oh, good. 
I'm glad. And so, but I don't get the word out. You do. So, so I'm going to watch the next couple of months and see how you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was really a, a delightful conversation, and I'm I'm grateful for your wisdom and for the work that you're doing. And well, it sounds like, and I know that you're doing a lot of a lot of good for parents to just provide support and help and ideas. Well, good. you you help a lot by making podcasts. So that's the end of my interview with Alan Kasdan. Do check out his book, The Everyday Parenting Toolkit. I actually found it to be really helpful in my own parenting struggles. And it's really simple and easy to read and one that I think is really useful. So we'll be back next week with my interview with Leah Woodward. Leah is a business strategist and runs a number of companies online. We will be talking about international travel and being location independent when you are a mother of two young children. It's a really great conversation, and I hope you'll check the interview out when it goes live next week. Until then, thanks for listening to Parenting Reimagined. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting. 